Well, I am sure you have never had those times where you've been sucked into those short videos on Facebook or YouTube. Um, but I recently did, and it was these engagement proposals gone wrong. So it's these very embarrassing videos where the girl says no. And it was really painful to watch. And they were often the same, where the guy had the idea to have a big crowd around. And there was one where it's like a concert. And so the guy's up there on stage on a microphone and he brings up his girlfriend. Or there was this other one where the guy's at the mall and he gathers as many people as he can gather and he has this sound system that he's speaking on. And both of them, they gave this very heartwarming speech. This, you know, lovey-dovey words, I can't imagine my life without you, and I love you so much, and my life is different because of you, and you, you know where this is going, so you just feel awkward watching this video. And then the girl finally has her turn to talk, and she just kind of looks at the guy and says something like, I'm sorry, I can't. And then she walks off the stage or walks out of the mall, and the guy is just standing there. And yes, we feel really bad for that guy. But I also feel really bad for that girl. I mean, did the guy know better? I mean, is it possible that he knew she might not have said yes before making a big scene of the whole thing? Because honestly, if she's not really sure, she probably shouldn't say yes. Because if she does say yes and she marries the guy, then she's committing to say yes till death do us part, right? That one singular yes implies a thousand smaller yeses. Yes, I will be faithful to you. Yes, I will love you. Yes, I will show it. I will be there for you. She shouldn't say yes unless she is ready to keep saying yes. Now, parallel that to your commitment to Christ. When did you say yes to Christ? Because the moment that you did, you committed to a lifetime of yeses. And that singular yes to following Christ really implied a thousand smaller yeses. Yes, God, I, I will obey you. I will live for you. I will speak up for you. I will do whatever it is you ask me to do. Whatever divine assignment that we are given we should be ready to say absolutely yes, without hesitation, without objection, without excuse. We should be women who are always ready to say yes to God. And Exodus 3 and 4 is going to help us with exactly that. So turn there with me if you're not there already. And it is a big portion of Scripture. So just to let you know where we're going, we will work through this text one chunk at a time covering most of chapter 3 and a part of chapter 4 with a little bit more commentary as I read than usual, but especially highlighting Moses' response to the assignment that God gave him. And while it's unfortunately from the angle of what not to do, as far as what Moses did, there is still a lot we can learn. So before we jump into chapter 3, 
picture Moses being 80 years old. He was 40 when we last saw him in chapter 2. That was right before he fled Egypt. And it has been about 40 years. And so now he's 80 years old and he is deep in his career as a shepherd now. So let's read it. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take, off, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Verse 7, then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt." And before we read Moses' response, a few things to note. So you look back up at verse 1, and it sets the stage saying that Moses was on the mountain of God. I think it's good to note that when this was being experienced by Moses, this was not known as the mountain of God. This is just your ordinary wilderness that Moses was in. So he was not expecting something supernatural to happen. Later, when it was written, when Exodus was written, a lot had happened there. So it made sense to add that in. It was the mountain of God. But Moses is just there on a typical day on your typical mountain. And then that's when this amazing supernatural thing happened. There's a burning bush. And I know we've heard that so many times that it almost feels like that's a real noun, right? Like, that's a thing, right? A burning bush. But it's not. That's a very supernatural thing. For a bush to be burning and to not be consumed is miraculous. And so there's this burning bush, and then God introduces himself. His voice comes out of that bush, and it is not at all a casual introduction, of course, by the fact that it is a burning bush. But also, uh, he speaks of the ground that was just normal, common ground The animals were just walking on. And he says, this ground is now holy, simply because of God's presence, that ground becomes holy. And then in verse 5, God says, basically, you better stand back, right? In reverence, take off your shoes, because man is not supposed to approach God's presence casually. And clearly, Moses got that. He was afraid to even look towards God. And then God introduces himself, not just as holy, but in verse 6, God says that he's the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, whom Moses would know as God, right? The covenant God of his people. The God who promised to keep them, to protect them, and to bless them. And that's exactly why he is here, what he was coming to do. 
Uh, he's allowed his people to suffer in Egypt, as you know, for a really long time, for 430 years, and the time for their deliverance was right then, was now. And so big things are about to happen. God says, I am here. I am coming to deliver my people, and I am sending you, Moses. And Moses then gives us his response to the divine assignment that God had just given him. So let's look at the first of five responses that we will see from Moses. First one being in verse 11, it says, But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? You can almost picture Moses there, right? I mean, you imagine being him for a moment. God just said, I'm sending you to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the most powerful person on the planet at that point. The man who was oppressing an entire nation. Not to mention, think back to chapter 2 when we last saw Moses. Moses was in Egypt, and he was kind of trying to do the deliverer thing at that point. Uh, Some people were being oppressed, some Israelites, and so he went to go do something about it. He killed some Egyptians, and he was not received well, even by his own people. And so he was scared, and so he fled. So he's thinking, you know, I I tried that, right? I'm, I'm not the hero type. I'm not the deliverer type. God, I think you got the wrong guy. And God's response to him is very telling. Look at it in verse 12. God said, But I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. But I will be with you. God could have taken that moment right there to convince Moses of why he is the best man for this job. But he didn't, because that was besides the point. It was about who God was. God's saying, I picked you, and it's about who I am. It's not about who you are. I am the one who's going to accomplish this. He basically says, you'll see, right? One day when you're on this mountain, it'll be obvious to you that I have done all this. You'll see. And with that confidence, he says, I will be with you. Those five words mean everything. I mean, that should have jolted Moses out of his fear and into trusting God. Okay, God, I I don't know how this is going to work, but I I trust you. You'll be with me. Okay, we can do this. What do you want me to do? And as we think of how Moses' situation relates to ours, that same truth should impact us. If God wants us to do something, our past doesn't matter. Our fears don't need to stop us. Our season of life doesn't matter. Even our lack of confidence in ourself doesn't matter. There's no need to ask, who am I? Because it's not about who we are. It's about who God is. And he will be with us, and he will help us. That's point number one. Remember that God will help you. When it comes to whatever God assigns for you to do, God will help you. And his help is exactly what we should expect as New Testament Christians 
You remember what Jesus said when he was here on earth. He said, it would be better if I go away so that the helper can come, right? And we come to learn that helper is the Holy Spirit whom God gives to Christians that indwells inside of us and allows us to do the things God wants us to do. He moves us from the inside to do whatever God wants us to do, and he's called the helper. He's meant to help us do whatever God wants us to do. So what are those divine assignments? You know, we don't get our burning bush, but we do have a whole lot of clear assignments right in front of us. Uh, first, I mean, it's just a divine assignment to be the kind of person that God wants you to be, to live a holy life, to be godly, to obey God's word in all the ways that it relates to our character. And of course, we do need God's help with that. It's also a divine assignment to do the roles well that God has given us to do. So he's called us all to be a part of the body of Christ, and we should do that well. He's called us all to be ambassadors for Christ, and we should do that how he wants us to. And many of us are wives and moms and grandmas and sisters and friends. All of those things imply a divine to-do list as we invest in the people that God's put in our lives. And he's given us gifts and opportunities to use for him. He's even given us trials and difficulties. I mean, sometimes our divine assignment is just joyfully embracing the life that God has given us and whatever difficulties that comes with it and doing it well for his glory. Sometimes God will call us to make really big sacrifices for him. Sometimes he'll call us out of the life as we know it to do something for him. But many of us won't be sensing some extraordinary call. We will just need to be godly and faithful, using our lives for eternity, one basic yes at a time. It really just comes down to doing what you know God wants you to do, living out the good works that God has prepared for you. That's how Ephesians 2.10 says it. It says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And that sounds really great, right? Even exciting, until the rubber meets the road. And then that's where we can find ourselves in the shoes of Moses, basically saying, who am I, God, to do this thing that you asked? I mean, my, my plate is so full. Who am I to invest in other people? Um, I mean, God, you can't expect me to be the kind of person who, who disciplines my kids. Um, or I, I can't joyfully go through this kind of situation. I'm not good at talking to people. I mean, how can I share the gospel? Uh, how could I forgive in this kind of situation? I mean, have you seen my to-do list? I can't, I can't even prioritize Bible reading and prayer. All day long, we could basically say what Moses said. Who am I to do this thing, God, that you want me to do? But again, it is not about who we are. It's not about how strong we are or how strong we aren't. It's not about our personality. It's not about how tired we are. It's, we could feel as ill-equipped as Moses felt. But if God is asking us to do something, if it's a divine assignment that he has given us, he will help us in it. So it might be good in your mind to just pinpoint 
what are some of those divine assignments that you know are going to come up? I mean, one could come up in the next couple of hours where you know that God's going to want you to do something and you have the opportunity to say yes. Or if not in the next couple of hours, I'm sure you could think of some within the next couple of days or beyond. There's opportunities constantly where God is putting things in front of us, maybe something you feel convicted about, something you know that you should be doing, but it's going to come up, a time where you should say, yes, God. So keep that in your mind, and with that in mind, listen to these words from the Apostle Paul. He says in 2 Corinthians 9, 8, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Paul's talking about generosity, which is certainly an example of what God asks of his people, but that principle can apply so much more broadly to anything that God asks us to do. We have all sufficiency in all things at all times so that we could abound in every good work. It's just good to start encouraged, start motivated, because you know that God is with you, because he will help you. And Moses really should have been at this point in the conversation with God when he heard that God will be with me. I mean, yes, it was a tremendous task that God was calling Moses to, but he had a tremendous God that would be with him. And unfortunately, that did not solve Moses' concern. He responds right away to these encouraging words from God about his presence with another veiled objection. So let's look back at the text. We see Moses' response in verse 13 and God's response back to him in verses 14 and 15. So let's read that. Chapter 3, verse 13 says, Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Verse 14, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And then God goes on to tell Moses exactly what he should do in verses 16 through 22. But what is Moses really getting at with that question? You know, if I go to them and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say? There's multiple ways that that's been interpreted. Um, one is they want him to prove it. You know, what is his name? Prove it to me. Or there might have been like a skepticism. You know, are, who is this God really? I mean, what, what are you really talking about here? Or maybe it has to do with the fact that names had a certain significance, right? I mean, names meant a lot. It told about a person. And so they're saying, who is this God? Like, what is his relevance to the situation that we are in? I mean, especially because they haven't heard from God in a really long time. They're in a hard situation. So what does this God mean? Who is he? How does that relate to the situation that we are in right now? Tell us about him. Regardless, God answers all of those questions. When he says, I am who I am. I am the one who who was and who is and who will be, and I'm the covenant God, right? The God of Abraham, Jacob. I, he has been and he will be faithful to his people. That's what he's communicating. All of those things, God answers. And that reiteration of who God is really should have further bolstered Moses' confidence in who God is, the God who will be with him. Uh, and even ours, what a good God, right? Who so clearly is good and faithful to his people. 
But as far as Moses is concerned, whatever his question actually meant, what we see him doing is still not saying, yes, God. He's stalling in a sense. He's talking it through rather than moving forward. God just said he will be with him. So Moses doesn't need to ask all these questions thinking that he's going to be fending for himself. He needed to just move forward and do what it is that God asked him to do. And so it is with us when we know what God wants us to do. We need to not stall. That's point number two. Don't stall. And what Moses' stalling looks like in verse 13, and ours for that matter, is a little like when you ask a child to do something that they are scared to do. Like say you are teaching your young child independence, and so you say, I want you to go up there and I want you to order the food by yourself. And they look at you and they think, mm, okay, um, but I don't have any money. And you're like, okay, <laughs> if I'm gonna have you order the food, I'm gonna either give you money or I'm gonna pay for it. You don't need to worry about it. And then they say something like, but what if I can't see over the counter? Like, okay, I, I will go with you, right? I'll make sure they see you. I will be with you. And then they might say something like, well, I don't know what it is I even want to eat. And the thing is, what they're doing, they're not saying no per se, but they are kind of, right? They're stalling. And what it really is, is it's getting really close to disobedience because it's delaying obedience. It's not the kind of response that kids should give parents, and it's certainly not the response that God's kids should give him. Play a situation out in your mind. You know, one of your divine assignments, where you have that moment, where you know what it is that God wants you to do. You have the clear conviction of the Holy Spirit. You see it in God's word. It's very evident, and you have the opportunity to obey. If you have an obedient heart, what are you going to do? You're going to do the next thing, whatever it is. You're going to move forward. You're going to push forward doing whatever it is that you should do. If you have a less than obedient heart, you're going to stall a little bit. You might even say something like, I think I need to pray about this uh, to make sure this is really what God wants me to do. Um, or I think I need to talk to my godly friend and see how she handled this and, and see what she would do in this situation. You know, I need to think about it. Or maybe I'll do it tonight. Or maybe I'll do it tomorrow. But remember, we're talking about something that you know that you should do. And it could be as black and white as a voice coming from a burning bush. But what the problem is, is our feelings and our willpower is just in this jumbled mess. But think about what James 4.17 says. It says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. So even if you're planning on doing the right thing, if you're not ready, you got to admit that you're at least flirting with sin at that point. You know the right thing to do, but you're not doing it. And the problem with that is not only is it a heart issue that we have to deal with, but it's like that experience that maybe you've had like me 
where you go to jump off some high spot into a big pool of water. Why we do these things, I don't know. But we've all had that experience, right? As young people, we're like, yeah, that sounds like a fun time. Let's jump off this high spot into you know, a lake or a river or a big pool from the diving board, whatever it is. My friends were doing it, I thought it'd be great. So the thing is, I was never one of those people that would just walk up to the end and jump off. I was one of those people who would go up to the end and look down. And I'd think about it, and I'd stall a little bit. And the thing is, that was pretty much all it took to often not jump off. Every once in a while, yes, I would go ahead and jump off. But many times, that's all it would take to just stay right there. The thing is, stalling can be dangerous, spiritually speaking, at least. It's giving yourself an opportunity, maybe even a temptation, to not do the thing that you know that you should do. Our goal should be to do as the psalmist said in Psalm 119.60, where he says, I hasten and I do not delay to keep your commandments. That's Psalm 119, verse 60. Next time you know what God wants you to do, don't wait. Don't ask unnecessary questions. Don't stall. Just do what it is that God asks you to do. But you know where that jumping analogy falls short is when it comes to physically speaking, it is actually not always a bad idea to stall. I mean, right, it is, it's good to know what it is you're jumping into. It's good to know how deep that water is. It's good to know if you're going to hit a rock. It's good to know if belly flopping is going to massively hurt. I mean, stalling in that situation might allow you to see that jumping is not the wisest decision. But it, when it comes to obeying God, it is always the wisest decision. So we don't need to sit there and think about it because we can know that he will take care of all of the details. And that's the next thing that Moses did not seem to get as the narrative goes on. So let's look back at the text. And if you were to scan through the rest of chapter three, you see that God is telling Moses not just what he should do, but he tells him how it's all gonna go down. God's got it all planned out. Uh, to summarize, God says, Moses, you're going to tell the leaders of Israel that I have come to you. They're going to believe you. You're going to all go to Pharaoh, and he's not going to listen to you, unless he's compelled by a mighty hand. And so I'm going to show my mighty hand, and then you know, basically we're going to come out on top. So God's got it worked out. And then Moses responds to him in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. That word behold is sometimes translated if. So it's not that Moses is boldly disagreeing with God. You know, you, you God said that they're going to believe me, and no, they are not. They're not going to believe me. It's more like he's questioning it. Okay, you said they're going to believe me, but what if they don't? What if they don't really listen to me? He's still questioning it. And God continues to be so gracious and patient with Moses. He takes his concerns seriously, and he proceeds to give him three miracles to have in his back pocket. So let's read those real quick in verse 2 through 9. It says, The Lord said to him, 
what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Verse six, again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it, re- it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs and, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. The way that God tells him to use these signs to help the people believe, it kind of seems like this was God's plan all along. Like he says, this is how they will believe. So in other words, the way this could have gone down is God said, hey Moses, I'm going to send you to go deliver my people. And Moses says, okay God, Uh, I don't know how this is going to work, but I trust in you. What do you want me to do? And God says, well, here's these three signs. You're going to take these, you're going to show them to the people, and they will believe you. And Moses says, okay, great. (laughs) And wouldn't that have been better if that's how it went? If Moses just said, yes, God, I trust you. And who knows how this would have gone down if Moses said yes. But what we do know is he didn't. He was busy asking the questions, saying, what if? He was letting himself linger in his fears and doubts instead of trusting God. That's a key lesson to learn from Moses. Point number three, trust God with the details. Trust God with the details. Sometimes doing things God's way will feel costly. It might be scary take us out of our comfort zone, and we'll be tempted to not obey right away because we are trying to figure out how it's all going to work out. We're planners, right? We want to plan what's going to happen after we obey, before we obey. A perfect example of this is when we know that we should share the gospel. We know that we should tell someone about Christ, and we are just plagued by the what-ifs. You know, what if they think I'm a weirdo? What if they ask me some really hard questions? What if I say something dumb? And it's at that point that we just, we do what we know we should do and we trust God with how it's all going to work out. Or this comes up when the yes that God wants is, yes, God, I will trust you through my trials. Instead of being plagued by so many fears and doubts, I mean, there's hundreds of things that could keep us up at night, but just saying God, I I know being anxious does no good, so I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to trust that you will work out the details. Or I'm I'm even going to trust you with my day, with my to-do list, and I'm going to prioritize getting in your word and spending time in prayer. When my husband makes a decision I wouldn't have made and God calls me to submit, I'll choose to submit and I'll trust God with how it will work out. It comes down to seeing, obeying God as the only good option that there is. 
So we let the chips fall where the chips are going to fall. It may go good, it may be hard, but either way, it's what we have to do. For whatever it's worth, this logic recently played out in thinking through my eyesight. Basically, I feel like every day I see a little less than I did the day before. It's just getting worse and worse. And so if I see you in the hallway and it seems like I don't recognize you, I probably don't recognize you because I can't see you. And so as my eyesight is getting worse, I'm starting to think, okay, maybe I need to just, I need to consider whether I'd be a candidate for LASIK surgery or something like that. My husband and I have actually talked about it for about five years, but I would never consider it because I would say I have a real phobia of anything getting near my eyes. I mean, it could be something that's feet away from me, and if that thing is pointing towards my eyeball, it just really weirds me out. So I picture what it would be like sitting in an operating chair. Whatever that operating chair is like, however they have my eyes glued open, I'm thinking there is no way my eyes are going to stay open. There is no way I'm not going to be squirming involuntarily. <laughs> there is no way I'm not going to embarrass myself screaming. It sounds like a crazy idea. I don't know that I could do such a thing. But then again, my eyesight has gotten really bad. Uh, recently, I literally almost didn't see a horse in the middle of the road as I'm driving. I can't always tell if my baby is awake or asleep across the room. I don't know if someone is smiling at me or frowning at me. And so it's gotten bad enough that I finally resolved to say, if I'm a good candidate, if this is a good choice, I'm going to stop thinking through the details. Because if it's something that I have to do, I'll face them when I face them. And that is exactly the resolve that we need to have in our obedience to God. If it's something we got to do, if it's something that God has told us to do, let's face the details when we face the details. Let's just do what needs to be done. It's this reckless abandon that we should have in our obedience to God. Except for it's not reckless because we know that God has everything under control. It's where you go for it. Not because you don't care what's going to happen to you, but because you know who cares for you. And I know many of you are doing that. Day after day, you are being faithful to do things God's way. And many of you in really hard situations and you got to keep doing that. Don't start questioning yourself. Don't start asking the what ifs. Just keep going, knowing that God's got you. He really is working out all things for good for those who love him. Romans 8, 28. And his good is truly good. It's good for his glory. It's good for his people. It's good for you, his child. Every yes will be worth it. But it doesn't mean it's not a struggle uh, it is easy to lose sight of the fact that yes is worth it. And all of us can come up with excuse after excuse about why this time it doesn't make sense to do things God's way. And I know you know that that is exactly what Moses did. So let's look back at the text again. In chapter 4, verses 10 through 12, we see Moses give his objection and we see God's response. Chapter 4, verse 10 says, but Moses said to the Lord, O oh my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? 
Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. So Moses says he's not eloquent. But the thing is, if you look up to chapter 3, God has already told him exactly what to say. I mean, look up at it in verse 14. Chapter 3, verse, verse 14, it says, Say this to the people of Israel. And he says it again in verse 15. Say this to the people of Israel. In verse 16, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, and he tells them what to say. In verse 18, go say this to them. So Moses is not having to come up with what he's going to say. But maybe Moses does picture himself in this situation, and he's thinking, I'm not quick-witted. I'm not going to be able to come up with what to say when the argument gets heated. Or maybe he pictures the way conversations go in Pharaoh's court, and he's like, I'm not up for this. But as many commentators note, it's not so much that Moses had a speech problem. He had an obedience problem. I mean, he is plenty fine arguing back with God. And Stephen notes in Acts 7.22 that Moses was actually a powerful speaker. It says that he was mighty in his words and deeds. I mean, basically, Moses didn't want to do the job, and he's making excuses. Is there a little truth to what he said? Really, that's besides the point. God has told him what to do. He's given him the words to say what he needs to say. And Mo Moses is like wiggling his way out of it. And clearly not what we do not want to do. If we want to be ladies who say yes, we need to ditch the excuses. That's point number four, ditch the excuses. And all of our excuses are fairly comical, usually. I mean, Moses clearly was. He's talking about his words. He's saying that he's not eloquent. That's when God says, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God has given him his mouth. He's given him his ability to speak. And even if Moses had a weakness, God says, who makes him mute? Who makes him deaf? Who makes him blind? I mean, if he has this weakness, God has given it to him. So God has equipped him plenty to do what God has asked him to do. And if he's not equipped already, God will equip him when the time comes to do what God asks him to do. So what is your typical excuse? What is that excuse that you use to be on the sidelines more than you should be or to lower the standard for yourself? Is it your stage of life or your, your busyness? I'm too busy or I'm taking these classes or I have young kids or I have teenage kids or I'm tired um, or it's my health or it's my personality. Uh, whatever it is, picture God saying to you, who gave you your time? Who gave you the stage of life that you're in? Who gave you your health? Who gave you your personality? Who gave you your life? Now go. Do what it is I've asked you to do. Or maybe you feel like you're past the need to give too many yeses. Now, I've given lots of yeses in life. I'm going to save the big yeses for the young folk. But... Think of where Moses is at right here. He's 80 years old, and yes, they lived to be a bit longer, but he's still entering his last third of life, and this is when God has called him to do his most effective ministry. And could it not be 
that you still have your most effective ministry ahead of you. I mean, why wouldn't you? You are, I'm sure, more wise than you used to be. You probably have more time on your hands. You probably, in most situations, are listened to and better respected than you've ever been. Age should not be an excuse, but an asset. Yes, ministry might not look the same as it did 20 years ago, but it can still be more effective if you say yes to the opportunities that God has put in front of you. Whatever you feel might slow you down, might just be that weakness that gives room for more of God's strength. That's how it's put in 2 Corinthians 12, 9. It says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Weakness is a reason to depend on the Lord, not to make excuses. We have all we need to do, all he's called us to do. 2 Peter 1.3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. There is nothing that God wants you to do that you cannot do. Nothing. We've got to ditch the excuses. And of course, we really wish Moses did as the narrative comes to an end. But instead, really, he just finally stops pretending that he has a good reason and he just admits that he doesn't want to do what God's called him to do. So let's look at Moses' response for the last time in verse 13. He says, Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him, and take in your hand this staff, with which you shall do the signs. So Moses basically just says, I don't want to do it. He does have a respectful tone, but it is not a submissive heart. And God heard his rejection loud and clear. I mean, throughout these, these two chapters, God has been so patient with Moses. He has heard each and every one of his concerns, and he's responded to it thoroughly. But by the end here, Moses, he still hasn't had a change of heart. He has still not got on board and God was rightly angry. Verse 14 says, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. But even then, we continue to see God's grace, right? He didn't reject Moses. He brought in Moses' brother to help him. And that ends the conversation for now. Moses goes back to Egypt, and the chapter ends with Moses and Aaron working as a team. So let's read the final couple verses in chapter 4, verses 29 through 31. It says, Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they had heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. So by the end of the chapter, we see that the first step of God's plan is done as he said it would be that the people would hear it, that they would believe it, and then they worshiped. 
But what a detour. And what a bummer that didn't have to go, couldn't go with plan A, but had to instead go to plan B. And God's plan A is always better. There was only one right choice to make, and Moses didn't make it. And if Moses was here helping us think through these first few chapters of Exodus, he would tell us, go with God's plan A. If you have an opportunity to say yes to God, an opportunity to obey God, an opportunity to be used by God, take it. It is a choice that you will never regret. Write it down this way for point number five. Make the choice you won't regret. And one reason I think he'd especially tell us to say yes is because we want to please God. I am sure he wished that he did not make God angry. I mean, for all of us, it's not just about a right choice or a wrong choice made in a vacuum. It's not a mathematical calculation about what would be best. It's about a someone asking us to do something and we're saying no. It's about possibly grieving the heart of God. And yet on the flip side, what a joy it is to choose the right thing because we're doing it for God. Because we can please God. Because we can be used by him. I was reminded of this a few days ago by something one of my daughters said. Uh, It's the time of year where it's the Christmas musical, where the kids are all getting ready for that. And I have several daughters in the Christmas musical, and so musicals on the brain. They are constantly talking about it. And one of my daughters, she loves being in the Christmas musical, loves it. But there is one part of it that she does not particularly love. In fact, I would say she very, very, very much does not like this. As soon as Christmas musical comes up, she starts talking about how she dreads the performance makeup. (laughs) That on those last couple of days when they perform, they have to wear makeup. And it's not a big deal, it's just, you know, to show their smiles and you can see their mouth and all from the stage but she really doesn't like it. It's a concern, it's so hard for her. Months down the road, she's thinking about this. Well, Sunday, she said the sweetest thing with a big, fat smile. She comes up to me and says, Mom, I really don't want to wear the makeup, but what I keep telling myself is, I'm doing this for God, and that makes it okay. And isn't that the truth? There are hard things for us to do, and we all have different hard things that God asks us to do. But we will never regret doing it for God. And there's even a joy that comes from the fact that we can do this for God. We can serve the Lord with gladness. That's how Psalm 102 puts it, serve the Lord with gladness. And thinking of my daughter, who cares about the makeup, right? I mean, that's not what it's about. But what's so neat is in that moment, she's starting to get what life is all about. That life is not about us. It's what we need to get. It's what Moses needed to get. That life is about God. It's about his glory. It's about his plan that's working out. It's about us getting to be a tiny part of, whatever part he calls us to play. 
And he does call us to play different parts. All of our yeses are different. We can't compare your yes to her yes or my yes. All the yeses are different. He has different good works that he wants us to walk in. I mean, even our fight for godliness looks different. But he's looking for people who have a mentality of yes, God. Not just, yes, I will follow you at the beginning, but it implies a thousand other smaller yeses after that to whatever it is, whatever kind of task God asks us to do. It could be the small stuff, the daily stuff, the mundane stuff. It could be big. It could be life-changing. Whatever it is, we should be women who are always ready to say yes without excuse, without hesitation, without delay, and with confidence because we know that God will help us, because he will work out the details, because it will be worth it, because we'll be so glad we did. Whatever divine assignment we are given, let's willingly, gladly say, yes, God, I will do it. Let's pray. God, as we think of Moses, as he comes to mind, um, we, do, we don't want to be the... <laughs> the people who are pointing the finger, throwing him under the bus. Uh, I think we're actually thankful that there is a normal man in Scripture and we get to see his life played out and really it's very similar to ours. We might think his is big and dramatic, but how many times we don't say yes to you when we should all day long in small ways, in ways that aren't even as costly, we are still inclined to say no, to let ourselves say no. And I pray, God, that his example, as we look at it, that we would see his five objections and see that we can fall in those traps, God. We don't want to be women who do that. We want to say yes to you. God, help us to do that. Help us to see the opportunities in front of us, even as we drive home, even in our thoughts, uh, the kind of thoughts that we should be having could be a yes, God moment. Yes, I will think on the right things. And I will act the right ways to my family, to the people around me. I will use my life for your glory. I will do the hard things. I'll say the hard things. I'll sacrifice for you. God, I pray that we would see all of the opportunities to say yes in front of us and that we would take them. We would take them gladly with joy because we can please you. And that should bring us so much joy. We can be a tiny part of your plan. So God, help us to see these opportunities as sweet opportunities to say yes and to please you. In Jesus' name, amen.